Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. Good evening. It's great to see you all. Praise God. It's good to sing his praises together, isn't it? It's what we were created to do. And when we do what we're created to do and we bring to God the one thing we have that he desires, then he gives us what we desire. He's kind and gracious. He's good and faithful. And I want to share with you this morning, this evening, sorry, this morning. It's a long time since I've been in an evening meeting. I'm usually in bed with me cocoa by now. Um, <laughs> but this evening, I, it's my privilege to share with you from the Word of God. And we're going to look at some of the principles of prophesying, but I, I, I trust it will be from uh, a different perspective than we usually come. Because you do know, don't you, that to be a prophetic people is not something we're aspiring to be. It is something we are. And it would be a foolish exercise for us to try and become what God has already made us. A lot of Christians waste their lives doing things like that. The greatest thing that you and I can do is recognize who we are in Christ. And if we were to recognize who we are in Christ, then many of the things that are problematic, many of the things that we face as difficulties and challenges would shrink into very manageable hiccups that we can so easily overcome. And we are overcomers. It's one of the things that Christ has made us. We are God's people. And therefore we are very special. Preachers delight in saying frequently, God has no favorites. I actually disagree with that. I think he only has favorites. That's you and I. The favor of the Lord is upon us. I'd like you to turn with me to the scriptures, please. And the book of Revelation, the first, first chapter. Don't worry, it's not going to get weird. Well, no weirder than usual, right? Revelation chapter 1. Verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
Blessed is the one who reads these words, the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. In verse 10 of the same chapter, verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I had turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Well, you would, wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have an encounter with Christ like that? Wouldn't it be magnificent to see him with our eyes, to hear him with our ears, to touch him with our hands, and to fall at his feet as though we were dead? What an encounter that would be. There are not many of us who've had an encounter like John had on the Isle of Patmos. But we've all had an encounter with Christ that was as powerful, as life-changing, as awesome as this man did. For Christ revealed himself to us. When we read the scriptures, the scriptures, of course, are all a revelation of Jesus. The whole of the Bible is about Jesus. Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day, you search the scriptures, for in them you believe that you have eternal life, but these are the scriptures that testify of me. It's all about Jesus. And if it wasn't about Jesus, and if Jesus wasn't the great revealer of himself, we would never know him. We only know him because he revealed himself to us. It wasn't our intellect. It wasn't our righteousness. It wasn't our determination that brought us to an encounter with Christ. It was the revelation that Jesus brought to us. He loves to reveal himself. See, he's not a God 
who distances himself from his creation. He's a God who reveals himself in so many ways. In fact, the world in which we live is actually a prophetic world. Everything in the world, everything in creation speaks to us about God. <coughs> Paul writes to the Romans and he says, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen through the things that he has made. Or the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. God reveals himself. And as we realize that we are by nature prophetic and that we have a prophetic spirit within us, we begin to see prophetic things on every hand. Jesus taught the disciples that way. One day the disciples were walking along and they were saying things like, what are we going to eat? What are, what are we going to wear? Now they weren't discussing, you know, which restaurant they'd go to that night or which Armani suit they'd wear for the next meeting. They were saying, what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? And Jesus called them to himself and he said, look at the birds in the air. Look at the flowers of the field. Why? Because they speak to you of God. Those birds of the air are prophetic. Those flowers of the field are prophetic because they're telling you loud and clear that my God will meet all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God wants us to become increasingly prophetically aware. First of all, by the things that we hear and see. And then by that receptor of the Holy Spirit who resides in you. So that the things that you receive of him, you can then speak out with authority and anointing and bring blessing to the whole body of Christ. See, one of the great things about Jesus, if we were to go around the room, might not work tonight because we know the subject we're exploring, but if we, on any other occasion, were to go around the room and say, you know, give me a name or a title of Jesus that you find comforting or exciting, uh, and we could go around several times, I'm sure, and we'd have someone would say, King of Kings, and we'd go, oh, hallelujah, amen. Someone, Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, thank you, Lord. We could do that. Be an interesting exercise sometime, wouldn't it? I'm sure we'd go around several times before somebody came up with this one. The prophet. Because it doesn't sound like as awesome as all the rest, does it? And, and, and we know he's more than that. I mean, the Muslims think he's a prophet. But he's greater than that. Yeah, he is greater than that, but he is that too. Moses made a promise to the people that God would raise up from among their own brothers a prophet like me, said Moses, and you must listen to everything he says. And when Jesus came into the world, he came as the prophet. 
In fact, the people who encountered Jesus were quick to confess that he was a prophet. Do you remember the woman at the well in Samaria where Jesus sits down and talks to her, uncovers her whole history, and her response is, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. What about the man who's born blind and Jesus opens his eyes and the Pharisees interrogate him as to who had done this thing? And they say to him, who, who do you say he was? And the man's response is, he's a prophet. The people knew he was a prophet. Not just those individuals, but the multitudes knew he was a prophet. When he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem and all the People were praising and worshipping him and the children were singing. Someone went to the crowd and said, what's going on? What's happening? And they said, oh, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. The multitudes believed he was a prophet. The disciples believed he was a prophet. Do you remember those two guys walking the Emmaus Road and Jesus draws near and goes with them? And he says, why are you downcast? Why are you so sad? What's wrong? And they said, oh, are you the only stranger who doesn't know what's happened? Of course, at that moment, Jesus was the only one who knew what had happened. <laughs> and he says, what's the problem? They said, well, Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. And what's more, Jesus believed he was a prophet. When Jesus said it's impossible for any prophet to die outside of Jerusalem, he was speaking about himself and he was claiming prophethood. Jesus is the great prophet who should come into the world. And because Jesus is a prophet, then his body is a prophetic body. The writer to the Hebrews begins his book like this, God who at different times and in various ways spoke to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So however many great prophets have been, this is the greatest, the prophet who was to come into the world. And this great prophet, after his ascension on high, as David read to us from Ephesians gave some to be prophets. But the prophets he gave were to equip the church. And for a prophet to equip the church means that he's going to help them fulfill the prophetic gift that is already in them. He's going to bring it forth. He's going to stir it up. He's going to call it out. Because every one of us here tonight who's named the name of Jesus, has a prophetic spirit. Amen. In the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, it says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's very simple. That is, if you've confessed the name of Jesus, you did that by the Holy Spirit. And the confession that you made with your mouth was a prophetic confession. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You made a prophetic confession. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul begins his whole uh, teaching on spiritual gifts by saying no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So every time you confess Jesus as your Lord, every time you speak out his praise, his worship, his adoration, you are acting prophetically. You're not just saying words. You're declaring anointed utterances prompted by the Holy Spirit. One of the great promises in Scripture is that God is going to make us just like Jesus. It's remarkable, isn't it? When I sit here and look out on you this evening, it is remarkable. <laughs> and every time in the morning that I look in the mirror, it is even more remarkable <laughs> that you and I are going to be like Jesus. In the meantime, he's changing us from one degree of glory to another. But as he is, so are we in this world. And if Jesus was the great prophet, now his body on earth is the great prophet. A prophetic community that declares the glory of God. I don't know if you noticed, but in our reading from Revelation chapter 1, where we get this awesome description of Jesus. There's, there's nowhere else in the scriptures that has such a wondrous description. You would think, wouldn't you, that the Gospels would contain some kind of clue about how, what he looked like. You would, wouldn't you? You know, if you're writing a biography of somebody, you'd think, give a little description. of How tall was he? You know, how how... You answer this one for me, will you? How long was his hair? <laughs> These are questions we all want answered, <clears throat> but nothing, nothing. But when we get to the book of Revelation, we get this awesome, breathtaking, fall at his feet like a dead man description of Jesus from his snowy, woolly head all the way down to his burnished bronze feet. How wonderful he is. How beautiful he is. And John, who's fascinated with his encounter with Christ, the same Jesus, by the way, with whom John went fishing. The same Jesus that they broke bread with. The same Jesus that they walked the streets of Judea with. But suddenly, see one of the things, if I can just throw this in, Jesus is your best friend, but he'll never be your buddy. Yeah. 
He's bigger than that. He's more awesome than that. And as John brings this, this breathtaking description, it seems that he's fascinated, magnetically drawn to his mouth. Because three times in the Scriptures, in, this, in these few verses, three times he speaks about the mouth or the voice of Jesus. In fact, his first encounter with Christ is, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, I believe that the author of the book of Revelation is John the Apostle. And this is John who had a very intimate relationship with Christ. This is John who, in his gospel, always refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John who leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. This is the John to whom Jesus entrusted his mother. They were pretty close and tight. This is John, who probably by now may be the last remaining apostle. All the others having gone on to their reward, having laid down their lives for the gospel. This is the old John. And although aged, hasn't given up the fight. In fact, he's given so much trouble to the Roman Empire that they've exiled him on the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. And although every door may be locked and every window may be barred, heaven is open. And he says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. You could be on the island of Patmos, but your circumstance can never prevent you from being in the Spirit. It's a good thing to be in the Spirit. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me. Now, I find that fascinating, because you'd think, wouldn't you, that somebody like John, this anointed apostle, this courageous soldier of Christ, this intimate friend of the Savior, you'd think that when Jesus turned up to meet him, John at least would be looking in the right direction. Which I heard behind me. It's almost, it's almost a touch of pantomime, isn't it? You can hear all the angels in heaven going, he's behind you. <laughs> what I like about John, he says this, I turned to see the voice. See, it doesn't matter how spiritual you are. It doesn't matter how mature you are. It doesn't matter how successful you've been in life or ministry. It doesn't matter how much money you've got. Whenever God turns up, you have to turn your life to match up with the word he's bringing. Even this great saint of God had to turn to line up with the word of God. Have you ever 
Of course you have, because you're Bible-believing and Bible-loving people. But have you ever kind of wondered, when you're reading the book of Ezekiel, like you do regularly, I know, when you get to those last chapters about the guy running around with a little measuring rod to see how big that, that idealized temple is, you know? And you, you read that and you, you, I don't know, you don't, I do because I'm not as spiritual as you, but I, I start reading that, I think, do I need to know all this? <laughs> you know, can't, can't I flip on, get a bit of gospel in me, you know? And, uh, is, you know, what, what a, do I need to know where the storeroom is for the grain? Is that life-changing? What's going to happen here? But if we don't read those bits, we often miss the gem that's in there. And Ezekiel doesn't just describe the temple. He gives instructions how to worship God at the temple. And he has this little thing. He says, listen, he says, if, if all those who come to the temple through the north gate must exit through the south gate. And all those who come in through the south gate must exit through the north gate. You see, if I didn't plow through all the other stuff, I'd never have found that out. How important that is. Yeah, that's important, yeah. Because it's telling us simply this. Every time we come into the presence of God, we're supposed to go out different to the way we came in. God expects you if you come sad, to go out happy. God expects you, if you come in unbelieving, to go out full of faith. God expects you, if you come in unsaved, to be born again before you leave. We go out differently to the way we came in. And God's Word does that. God's Word changes us. Whether it's the preached Word or whether it's the prophetic Word, it comes to us to change us. And John lines himself up with the Word of God just as well because he's bringing to us the only prophetic book in the New Testament. It starts by calling itself a prophecy. So it's an important book. And what's more, the way he describes Jesus, I want to suggest this evening, speaks to us in the different ways that you and I can operate in the prophetic gift, the first sound is the trumpet sound. The trumpet sound is one of the ways that the Bible consistently speaks of prophetic ministry. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 58 and verse 1. He says, Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people. I want to suggest to you tonight that the trumpet sound, the prophetic word that comes like a trumpet sound, is God's word to his people. This is the word that comes to John. And it's a word that has to be communicated to his people to the people in the churches of Asia. The trumpet sound. And the trumpet sound 
is met a metaphor for God's loud voice that speaks to his people. When God came down on the mountain, it was with a trumpet sound because he's going to declare his word to his people. You remember when God led his people through the wilderness, brought them out of Egypt, was taking them through the wilderness into the land of promise. You ever wondered how he did it? Because there's a lot of people. And you say, well, yeah, of course we know how you Scripture makes it very clear. He went before them in a column of fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day. Yes, he did that. But that's not all that he did. He had Moses make two silver trumpets. And the trumpets were for giving instruction to the pilgrim people. The trumpets gave different sounds for different things, which means, by the way, that in the area of prophetic ministry, it's not only got to be a clear trumpet sound, you've got to have ears to hear. You've got to be able to discern what the Spirit is saying to the church. See, there's this, there's this wonderful hero of mine in the book of Judges called Gideon. And Gideon is a bit of a reluctant hero. That's why we can all identify with him so well. He, he, he begins by being a bit of a cynic. He thinks God's forsaken them. He thinks God's left them alone. He thinks they're all in all kinds of trouble because God's pulled out. And the angel turns up and says, God is with you, valiant warrior. And Gideon starts arguing with the angel. If God is with us, why has all this happened? Where are his miracles? And the angel says, you will deliver Israel. How shall I deliver Israel? It's much easier to give in to what God says than try and argue with him. He will always win. And then he does what God commands him, pulls down the altar of Baal and stirs up a real hornet's nest of opposition. And then at that very precise moment, the enemy invades the land. And it says, and the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet. And the Abbe Ezraites were gathered to him. He, it was to call the army. It was to call the people to action. And I like that because the spirit comes on Gideon and he blows a trumpet. John's in the spirit and he hears a trumpet. So when prophetic word comes, it's not just that the anointing has to be on the speaker. The anointing must be on the hearers. So we know how to respond. The prophet Ezekiel was called of God to be a guardian of the city, a watchman. And he says a watchman's duty is this. He's to look out for trouble, and when he sees trouble coming, he blows a trumpet and gives warning to the people. You know, there are a lot of enemies out there who look like friends. 
We need to tune our trumpets so that we're only listening to the clear and unadulterated word of God. And Paul, when he's teaching the church about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says, if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? He's talking about spiritual gifts here. He's speaking about, particularly about prophecy. So we've got to be listeners and responders to the trumpet sound. In fact, that trumpet sound that by which God led his people through the wilderness operated in three different areas. It says that when it, 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 it leads you, it, it tells you when to set out, it gives you direction in which to go. But you're also to blow it at times of warfare. And you blow it again at the celebrations of your feasts and festivals. And so the Spirit of God calls us at seasons and times so that we're doing the right thing at the right time in response to the Word of God. If you're going to prophesy, and you all may prophesy, you should all desire the better gifts, especially that you might prophesy you make sure you're blowing a trumpet and not a raspberry. <laughs> we need to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And John hears the trumpet sound. And he turns himself so that he lines up with the word of God that's coming and we need to be in the Spirit so that when we hear the Word, we can respond to the Word. Not just hear it and let it go. Not just hear it and shrug it off. Not just hear it and forget it. But we lay hold of that Word. We say, God has spoken. Therefore, I will line myself up with the Word of God. Then when John is looking at Jesus, he, he, he says this, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. That's a strange kind of description for the voice of Christ. And it would leave us in confusion if the Bible didn't explain to us what it meant. <clears throat> Those of you who study the Scriptures, and I'm sure that's many of you, I know you all read the Scriptures, but some of us, you know, we like to get in and study and research and, and, and trace themes and ideas and concepts through the Word of God. And I recommend that you begin to do that because it's so rewarding and such blessing. And there are tools that can help us when we turn to the Scriptures, concordances, um, uh, commentaries. All these things can help us. But the best commentary on the Bible 
is the Bible. The Bible always explains itself somewhere. So when I discover that the voice of Jesus is like the sound of rushing waters, <clears throat> I find that's already occurred in scriptures. And it's back in the first chapter of the prophet Ezekiel, where Ezekiel has this amazing vision. For some people, a very confusing vision. For some people, the evidence that we've been visited by aliens. But it's, a, it's an awesome vision. What he sees is the cherubim of God carrying the throne of Jesus. In a, in a sense, that's what we do. You know, when we go out to preach the gospel, when we go out to reach the lost, we are carrying the throne of Jesus. We might speak of it in this way, we're bringing in the kingdom. When we bring in the kingdom, it's because we've brought in the majesty of the king. And people have seen his glory and have bowed the knee. They've been touched by his power. Do you remember how Jesus put it? He said, if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the throne of Jesus has been established in people's hearts and lives. And we get this heavenly picture of the, this, this angelic company, these cherubim carrying the throne of Jesus. And as they carry it, and from time to time they come down and set their feet and their wheels upon the earth, Ezekiel says, I heard the sound of them. It was like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army camp, like the sound of rushing waters. Rushing waters is the sound that surrounds the throne of God. And not only is it in Ezekiel we find that, but more convincingly, it's used twice in the book of Revelation. In chapter 14 of the book of Revelation, we see the 144,000. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that's, that's the company that will go to heaven. It's not going to be very crowded up there if that's all there is, is it? But we must always remember that more than anything else, the book of Revelation is a book of symbols. It's not a book to be taken literally. It signifies things. It uses metaphors and pictures. And there are certain numbers. When you read the book of Revelation, you'll discover that it's full of numbers. The number seven is an obvious one. It occurs all the way through the book. And the number seven in the Bible represents the fullness of God and his purposes. So when we see seven churches of Asia, it doesn't mean there are just seven churches in Asia because there were more than seven anyway. It means all the churches, the fullness of the churches. 
And there are lots of sevens in the book of Revelation. There are lots of numbers, the number four, because the number four in Scripture represents the world on which we live. That's why from the Garden of Eden there flowed four rivers. They were going to go to the four corners of the earth to take the Garden of God into every nation under heaven. That's still happening. And the number 12 is also a very, very much used number in scriptures because it represents the kingdom of God or the people of God because the two are the same thing. The people are the kingdom. Kingdom of God is in you. And so when we see the number 12, it speaks to us of, 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 of kingdoms. So the 144,000 are 12 times 12 times 1,000. And, and it's speaking of all believers, the whole amount of believers. If you've got a Bible that doesn't get too clever with itself and translate cubits and, and, and stadia and stuff like that into miles or meters, you'll discover that all the dimensions of the city of God are multiples of 12 because that's the people of God. Well, so we're not looking for a city that's uh, at this time uh, going round our world is some unseen uh, kind of mini planet that one day is going to come down literally and settle itself on earth. The kingdom is already coming down from God. It's the direction of its life. And it's full of twelves because it's the whole people of God. So when we see 144 sealed and anointed people on Mount Zion with the Lamb of God, we find that they're singing his songs. They sing a new song before the Lord, the 144 on Mount Zion. You, you do know, don't you, that right now, you and I are on Mount Zion. That's where we are. It's where we belong. Used to sing a hymn years ago, those of you who are old enough to, to remember when hymns were sung. I miss those days. Don't miss all the hymns. And we used to sing a song that went, we're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. And I, I, I you know, it's not a favorite anymore because I think, why am I marching to somewhere I already got to? <laughs> the Bible says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are enrolled in heaven. You've come to myriads of angels in festal assembly. You have come to the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And you've come to God, the judge of all. That's where we've come. That's where we are. We are on Mount Zion. It's where we live. So this 144,000 on Mount Zion, are singing a new song. And as they sing their new song, it tells us in the 14th chapter of the book of Revelation that their song and their worship and their music sounds 
like rushing waters. It's the praise that surrounds the throne of heaven. We find it again in the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, and this time they're not singing, but they're shouting. And that's a great blessing to some of us who can't carry a tune in a bucket. You, you, if you can't sing, give a good shout. And they're shouting praise and worship and adoration and thanksgiving. And they're saying glory to God. They're rejoicing at the victory and the triumph and the overcoming power of Jesus. They're rejoicing because the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. And their worship and their shouting and their praise sounds like, says John, rushing waters. If God's trumpet voice and the trumpet that you blow as a prophetic person is his word to the church, the rushing waters is the prophetic word that touches the throne in heaven. <coughs> Here's an interesting thing. It's the voice of Jesus that sounds like rushing waters. Well, do you mean Jesus sings? Yeah, he does. I bet it sounds great, don't you? It says this in the book of Hebrews, the second chapter. It says, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. <coughs> That's Jesus speaking. In the midst of your con in the congregation, I will sing your praise. Well, how can that be prophetic? Well, I'll tell you how it can be prophetic. Jesus is here this evening. All to open our eyes to see him. Our ears to hear him. Sensitize our hands to touch him. That may not happen, but he is here in great reality. And he's here not as an observer, but as a participator. And not just as a participator, but the occupier of center stage. He's here. How are we doing time-wise, Dave? Do I need to break? All right. Let's do that. Let's take a short break. Okay. Good. <clears throat> Jesus sings. And he sings in the midst of the congregation. And I'll tell you why he sings prophetically. Okay. Because the truth is, isn't it, that he loves you just as you are. He does. But he loves you too much to leave you just as you are. And here's the great thing. See, God has more confidence in you than you have in yourself. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That's his promise. And when Jesus moves among us, 
in the midst of the congregation singing. He sings over you. And he sings prophetically because he sings about not just who you are, but what you will be. That's what makes it prophetic. He sings in total confidence of faith that you will be all that he has called you to be. In your tough times, he's not phased. In your questioning time, he's not overcome with despair. He knows who he is and he knows that you're going to be like him. So when he sings, he sings prophetically. And his voice is like the sound of rushing waters. What's more, God the Father is a singer. Let me read a verse for you, or a couple of verses from the book of Zephaniah. This is chapter 3, verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The son sings and the father sings. Boy, if we could get, if we could get the disc, wouldn't that be something? I nearly said the tape. That shows my age, doesn't it? <laughs> Couldn't remember what the other thing was called. But God, over us, is singing. And Jesus, in the midst of us, is singing. And this heavenly duet is an anthem of prophetic praise that the God who's begun a good work in you will complete it. In the Hebrews 2 scripture, it's in the context of him bringing many sons to glory. That doesn't mean, by the way, taking them to heaven. It means by glorifying them so that they show forth his glory. God sings prophetic songs. Jesus sings prophetic songs. It's the, the sound around the throne. I'll come back to that in a moment because I think it's quite important. But John's looking at this risen, glorified Christ. He's overcome with deep, stirring emotions. He's overcome 
His legs have turned to jelly. He's, he, he can't stand in his presence. He's just fallen like a dead man. But on the way down, he's described everything that he's seen. And three times seems to be somehow the most important thing about him. He says there was a trumpet sound, a loud trumpet sound, like the sound of rushing waters. And then he says, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. If the trumpet sound is God speaking to his church and the rushing water sound is the sound that surrounds the throne of heaven, the double-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus is his word to our world. It's good to know that Jesus with this sword coming out of his mouth, seems to be literally armed to the teeth. There's nothing that can stand against him. And in the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, where John sees him again, this time as a great warrior on a white horse, he says, and out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now, we need to interpret that a little, to strike down the nations. We're not talking about the ultimate bloodbath of Armageddon. In fact, when you read the Bible, Armageddon is just a hiccup in the history of the world. It's God's enemies rising against him and God just snuffing them. It's not, not a big battle going on here. He overcomes them because he is king of kings and Lord of Lords. So when it speaks about striking down the nations, what does it mean? Well, it goes on in the 19th chapter to say this, he will strike them down with the sword out of his mouth and he will rule over them with a rod of iron. Now, I don't think that Jesus wants to rule over a pile of corpses. So when he smites the nations... He smites them into submission to his lordship and brings them under his benevolent rule. He's going to win the world. Remember, let me give you an example here. Here's the day of Pentecost. It's come. The Spirit has come. And the Spirit has come from heaven like the sound of a mighty rushing wind and it fills the whole house. Can you imagine coming to the meeting where the Spirit fills the whole house? Wow, it's going to happen. And Peter gets up and preaches the good news of the gospel. And it says this, those who heard him were pricked to their heart. What had happened? The sword out of the mouth had penetrated into the lives of those who heard. And what happened to them? They repented, believed, were baptized, 
and became part of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what the sword does. It's not a weapon of violence. It's a weapon of redemption. And it's the word of God. The writer of the Hebrews tells us in the fourth chapter, the twelfth verse, that the word of God is living and active. That means it brings action and life. It's living and active. That's not just, you know, a clever phrase. It, it tells us what the word does. It brings life. And it causes us to act. And he says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. and penetrates the thoughts and intents of the heart. Separates joints and marrows. Soul and spirit. It gets into us and reveals It'll still get into you as a believer and it'll reveal to you who you are. It'll get into you as an unbeliever and reveal to you what you could be. That's what the Word of God does. And this picture of a double-edged sword is another one of those repeated ideas in Scripture. In fact, the first time a double-edged sword is ever mentioned, it's in the book of Judges. And it's another one of my great heroes from the book of Judges. It's, it's, it's about a man called Ehud. Ehud was one of those poor, unfortunate people who was left-handed. I don't know if anyone here is left-handed. Right? It's a tough life for a left-handed person. Isn't it? The world was clearly created for right-handed people. I used to, I, when I was at school, they used to make left-handed people write with their right hands. And uh, I, I was glad of that because the guy I used to sit next to was left-handed and I couldn't copy any of his stuff the way he used to write. <laughs> but Ehud is a left-handed man. And at that time, Israel is under the dominion of King Eglon. And King Eglon is a very fat man. He's the sort of guy that people like me like to stand beside and feel smug, you know. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he, was, he was a big fat guy. And Eglon made for himself a double-edged sword. It was about a foot and a half long. And being a left-handed man... He kept it on the right side of his body, under his cloak. And he went to King Eglon and he said this to him. I have a word from God for you. Down here, many of those. And very soon you're going to get the point. And he said... Um, And it's a great story. If you, if you have anything to do with young people or children as a teacher in Sunday school, tell them the story of Ehud. It's got everything in it. It's got, it's got a fat man, blood and guts and a lavatory. I mean, it can't get any... <laughs> I mean, it can't get any better than that, can it? It's a real boy's story. So Eglon draws his sword because when he went in before this domineering 
dictator king. They, they, they didn't bother to frisk in, down his right side because, you know, everybody carried their sword on the left side. So they go through the, the guards and they go, you know, just down the road, having a lazy day. You know, we just, no, he's all right, let him in. But he's got a deadly weapon with him. And he kills King Eglon in such a dramatic way. He's got a foot and a half long double-edged sword, which he calls a word from God. And he stabs Eglon with this sword, and Eglon is so fat that he can't get it out again, and the fat closes over the handle. <laughs> I told you it was a good story, didn't I? <laughs> and, and, excuse me, but Eglon poos himself. Well, you can understand it, can't you, really? It's all in the Bible. I think it's great. I love it. That's the first time that a two-edged sword is mentioned. I got a sneaky feeling because I've heard, you know, po-faced, holier-than-thou Christians preach about Eglon, that he was a bad man because he told a lie. I think God looked down on what, it's, what Eglon did and he said, I like that, son. I'm going to use that myself. And from then on, you find lots of references to the word of God being a double-edged sword. The, last, the second to last psalm, uh, Psalm 149, is a psalm of taking the world for God. And it says we're to go forth with the high praises of God in our mouth and a double-edged sword in our hand to take vengeance on the rulers of this world, to bring out their kings in chains. We're going to win the world. Right? Forget about the Ehud and Eglon picture for a minute because that's not how we're going to do it. That's a picture of how we're going to do it. We're going to overcome by the word of God. We're going to win the fight by the two-edged sword. Sharper, the word of God, than any two-edged sword. Listen, listen again to, to Isaiah. This is Isaiah 49 and the opening verses. It says, listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. And then he goes on to say, he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. He's speaking to the nations of the world. And he said, my word is coming to you like a sharpened sword. It's going to penetrate the dividing of your soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, the thoughts and intents of your heart. It's going to prick you to your heart as the word comes in with power, it's going to overcome you. And in chapter 19 of Revelation, he's riding out on his white horse with the sword in his mouth. When Paul gives the Ephesian church a catalogue of the armor of God, 
it's almost all defensive weaponry. It's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the big shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, And feet, this always amuses me. He's speaking about a soldier dressed for war. But he says, and feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You think, hang on a minute. I thought we were going to war. Every step we take is bringing peace. We're not a people who will rise up armed to overflow, violent, overcome violently the nations of this world, we're going to win them with the love of Jesus. And every step we take, we're bringing peace. Peace is a wonderful commodity. It's your birthright to be at peace. We're living in days when a lot of people are concerned and worried and anxious I want you to know that that doesn't have to touch you. You're a people of peace. I, um, I remember years ago, um, my wife had three bachelor uncles who used to live together. A little bit odd, I have to confess. The uncles, they used to call them. The rest of the family called them the uncles. You know, it's like. And one of the uncles died, bless him. And he left my wife some money. And I got really excited because my family, you know, hadn't got two pennies to rub together. I thought, you know, I don't want him to die. I'm going to have to pay to bury him. You know, I. I <laughs> But, but, but Uncle Bert died and he left my wife some money. And I said, oh, I said, this is fantastic. I'm so excited. I said, I've never inherited anything before. And she said, you haven't now either. <laughs> and I, I was stunned. And I thought, wait a minute, I actually have. Because before he went to the cross to die, Jesus took his carpenter's pencil from behind his ear, licked the lead, and began to write on a piece of parchment, I, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world, Bequest and bequeath to all those who believe on me my peace. That's what he said to the disciples. My peace, I leave with you. And then he went to the cross and he died. But on the third day, he rose again. And he went to meet those same disciples who are now 
because of fear. Meeting behind a locked door. And the first thing he said to them was peace be with you. It's the first time in the history of the universe that somebody left a commodity of inestimable value to their friends, died so they could get it, and rose again to make sure they got it. <laughs> it's your inheritance, peace. That's why we're shod with the shoes of the gospel of peace. That's why Paul says to the Roman church, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace. When Jesus sent his disciples two by two out into the villages, he says, don't, don't take money. Don't take a rod with you. He says, but wherever you come to find a house and you meet somebody at the door, say to them, peace be unto you. And if there's a man of peace there, go and stay with him. If he's not a man of peace, take your peace back and take it somewhere else. It's as if you go out with peace tucked under your arm. You can give your peace. And they're going to work signs and wonders, but they're going out in peace. They're not going out in anxiety. They're not going out in fear. They're going in peace. And Paul says, and there's one more weapon that we're to take. That is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, when I say that, the Word of God, that's the sword of the Spirit, I wonder what you think that means. You will probably say, well, it's the, sword, it's the sword of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the inspirer of the Word. The Word was breathed out by God. It's His Spirit. And that's true. He is the inspirer of the Word. I want to suggest this to you. It's the sword of your spirit. By that, I mean the Word that has got into you the word that's working in you, the word that's changing and transforming you, the word that is motivating the way you live, the word that's shaping your character, the word that's making you more like Jesus, the word that's in you that you've proved to be powerful, you've proved to be true, you've demonstrated in the transformation of your life that it's real. It's that word that you draw out of your spirit and overcome the enemy. Now I've got to draw this to a close. But I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, with all the energy that I can muster, I want you to realize that as Jesus is, so you are, and that you are, by new birth, a prophetic people. Therefore, you can blow the trumpet. 
God will give you words that change things. God will give you words that direct things. You could be like Ezekiel, a watchman on the wall. God wants you to be bold in your prophesying and make sure when you blow the trumpet, it does not give an uncertain sound because then nobody will prepare themselves for battle, nor for worship, nor for progress. But you can do that. You can make a sound like rushing waters. Do you know you can prophesy in ways that touch the throne of God? I don't mean you can prophesy to God, but you can speak back to God the promises that he's made to you. And suddenly that promise becomes a prophecy. And God hears and God responds. You can do it in song. You can all do it corporately when you worship. So that you change your mindset that says, we're not just here singing songs. We're not just here worshiping God. Although, of course, that is what we're doing. But we're, we're sending back to heaven the promises that God has made to our earth and when we lay hold of them and declare back to God that we believe them, they become dynamic prophecies that promote God, provoke God to work on our behalf. You remember the valley of dry bones that Ezekiel saw? And he prophesied to the bones and the bones came together. And then sinews on the bones and then flesh. But there was no life in them. And God says to him, prophesy to the wind. You know, there are times when God says, prophesy heavenward. Speak to the heavens. You can pray prophetic prayers. You can sing prophetic songs that stir the heart of God and provoke him to move on our behalf. In our outreach, in our evangelism, you can be prophetic. You don't have to say to that person you're witnessing to, thus saith the Lord. You don't have to do that. They don't even have to know it's a prophecy. But God will give you insights. God will give you words. God will give you understanding. God will give you words of knowledge to speak into that situation that will cause them to say like the woman at the well, I perceive that you're a prophet. You know me so well. You've uncovered my situation so remarkably. We need to be relying on God for that prophetic anointing that is in us. Each one of us. And we need to say, I'm going to stir up the gift that is in me. I'm going to desire earnestly to prophesy. I'm tired of being quiet. I'm tired of just receiving. I want to become somebody who gives. I want to be somebody who contributes. I want to be somebody who builds up the body of Christ. 
that comforts the people of God, that cheers them on their journey. And we can all do that because we are God's prophetic people. I'd like to pray right now for you wonderful folk and the great and exciting future that lies before you. Father, I want to thank you for every one of my brothers and sisters here tonight. I thank you for who they are right now. And I thank you with greater excitement for all that they're going to become in the days ahead. But I thank you right now, Lord, today, this week. They can make a difference to their world. That they can rely upon you to receive revelation and insight and knowledge and understanding. I want to thank you that through their lips, lisping and stammering as they may be, you can speak your word into the hearts of men and women. I pray, Father, that as we gather as your people in our corporate meetings, that there will be a release of prophetic word that comforts and encourages and strengthens the people of God. I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that our praise and worship will carry an anointing upon it that touches the throne and provokes the throne to be established on the earth. Lord, here we are in your presence. Here we are in expectation. Here we are in faith, believing that you've called us to the kingdom for such a time as this. And we say, like your prophetic servant of old, here am I. Send me. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Lord, that be, let that be us, we pray, and cause us to be successful in our service to you, that your name in us and through us may be glorified. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Beloved, God bless you. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We meet every Sunday at 10.30am in Stony Stanton and 4pm in Tamworth and Market Harbour. Feel free to come and visit us. We'd love to meet you. Thank you.